The word vipassana in the Pali language literally means seeing clearly. Seeing with a special quality of clarity. And it means clearly seeing the specific elements of our experience. That is thoughts and sensations and the breath and all the different objects that arise. And it also means the clear seeing and understanding of the three characteristics of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness or unreliability, and of selflessness or anatta. It's fairly easy for us to connect with and relate (coughs) to impermanence and to dukkha, to suffering. It's most difficult to see and to realize and to understand the meaning of selflessness, of no self. This is often the most puzzling aspect of the Buddhist teachings. Perhaps the most frequently asked question in all the years of IMS is prefaced by the phrase, if there's no self then, who came to this retreat? If there's no self, who's making all this effort or not making effort? Who is it that's reborn? If there's no self, who gets angry? Who feels loving? Who has desire? Who has memories? What does it actually mean to say there's no self? In fact, does it mean anything? Sometimes people hear this, kind of just hear the phrase, no self, and they get frightened or they get anxious, you know, because there might be some imagination of, I don't know, suddenly the realization of no self means a big poof and we're gone. You know, and suddenly there's an empty space where you had been sitting. Well, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> The understanding, the realization of anatta, of selflessness, is really the great jewel of the Buddha's enlightenment. It's the great jewel of his teaching. Now there's a famous, uh, I guess it's a myth, or perhaps somewhat historical, In ancient times, there was a king of Asia, in Asia Minor. Uh, His name was Gordius. And he created, he was king over what's now uh, part of Turkey. And he had created or designed this knot. And he made the offer that, well, there was the prophecy actually, that whoever could untie the knot would go on to conquer or rule over all of Asia. And many people tried to untangle a knot and no one could. And then Alexander the Great comes along and he hears of this prophecy and he takes his sword and slices it and the knot is broken. So people interpret this in a lot of different ways. But at least one way in which it has meaning for me 
is the understanding that the self is not some kind of knot which we have to disentangle. You know, we spend our lifetime trying to untie the knot. Rather, we have to slice through the very notion of self you know, with one cut of understanding, with one cut of the sword of discriminating wisdom. In our practice, we begin to open to this transforming way of understanding our experience, understanding ourselves in the world. As the observing power of the mind is enhanced, is strengthened in our practice, we begin to see and experience directly that we're not who we thought ourselves to be. You know, we're not the sensations in the body and we're not thoughts and we're not emotions because all of these are simply phenomena coming and going Nothing of these is lasting long enough to be called self. How could we possibly call a thought, well, this is who I am, because in the moment it's gone, or even an emotion or some feeling in the body. Through the practice of clear seeing, of vipassana, of the specific elements in experience, all the different objects that arise, through the clear seeing of this, we begin to intuit that the very sense of self, sense of I, is a mental construct. It's a mental fabrication. It doesn't refer to something that is actually there. And as we begin to intuit or feel this sense of emptiness of self, it's really a great relief. Just imagine what you would be like if you actually were every thought that went through your mind. <laughs> it's a relief that they don't belong to us. So tonight I'd like to talk about how the mind creates this fabrication of self, this conditioned idea you know, of ego, and how we can free ourselves from it. Free ourselves from the illusion of it. We start with an understanding of the nature of the mind. The mind is the faculty of cognizance. It's that which knows. Its function is simply to know what arises. And when we look for it, or look to investigate it, we see that this knowing, this mind is invisible, there's nothing to see. It's clear, it's lucid, which means that its function is to know what arises. It's unobstructed, nothing gets in the way between the knowing and the appearance. There's also something else going on beside this pure faculty of knowing. 
And that is that in every moment of consciousness, <coughs> there also arise a whole variety of different mental factors, different mental qualities, which color the consciousness, which color awareness, each in their own way. Just as an example of some of these mental qualities with which we're all very familiar, these are not uh, secrets. Now, there's the quality or mental factor of greed, which clings, it gets attached, it sticks to the object. Or the mental factor of aversion, which pushes away or condemns the object. Now, there's the factor or quality of love, of mindfulness, of concentration, of joy, of despair. Each one of these is simply an arising quality functioning in its own way and disappearing. Some of these qualities of mind are wholesome and they bring happiness. Some of these mental factors are unwholesome in the sense that they bring suffering. What are called the afflictive emotions. So there's the natural purity, the natural clarity, the natural openness of awareness. And then this whole variety of different mental qualities, different mental factors arising and passing in each moment. Okay, there's one particular factor of mind which when out of balance keeps us imprisoned in this illusion of self. Now this factor is quite interesting because according to the Abhidhamma theory, the Buddhist psychology, it's a common factor, which means that it's arising in every moment. In every moment of experience this factor is present. But it sometimes is out of balance with the others and that's where we create a problem. <coughs> And this is the factor which is called perception. And perception has a particular function. It has the function to recognize what the object is. It picks out the distinguishing marks, what distinguishes one object from another. It creates a concept about it and stores it in memory. This is all the function of perception, or sanya, in Pali. Okay, so just as all those other factors of greed, of love, of hatred, each have their own function, perception has the function of recognition, creating concepts, storing in memory. Now when perception arises, and it's in balance with mindfulness, then the recognition of the object serves to frame it so that mindfulness then can understand it deeply, can penetrate deeply, can open deeply. And this is really the function of mental noting. You know, the mental labels, they are not a function of mindfulness, they are a function of perception. When we're making a mental note, we're recognizing what the object is. It's the in-breath or out-breath, or a thought or a sound. 
that function of recognizing, we see something and we label it, or we see it and, and recognize it as tree, as man, as woman, as red, as blue. This is all the function of perception. But when there is this strong recognition, strong perception without mindfulness, which is our usual state, we're living in a world of strong perception and intermittent mindfulness, we see and remember only the surface appearance of things, the surface recognition, because we don't have the mindfulness to look deeply. And then we further solidify that surface recognition with a concept, with a name, and then our experience becomes limited, further limited, by that concept. It's very difficult, without strong mindfulness, to remain fresh, to remain open in our experience. Just one arena in which this plays out a lot, although it plays out in much of our experience, but it's very noticeable in our perception of other people. You know, all the people we're with and we relate to, what happens? We pick out certain distinguishing marks, so we recognize one from the other. We create a concept of who that person is. We store that in memory. And then every time we see that person, we go back right to that level of surface recognition, surface perception, oh, I know who that is, and our whole story about them. It's very rare that we meet a person we already know with a really open beginner's mind. I had one example of this. It was a very quick process of getting lost in a perception and then the mind freeing itself of that, but it was very striking of the process. I had been on self-retreat here and um, I was in the dining room. I, most of my insights seemed to happen <laughs> in the dining room. Yeah, and as many of you know, when there are uh, any of the ordained sangha, uh, we, that they usually take the food first, monks or nuns. So on this one retreat, there was a Western nun in the Korean tradition. Uh, and so the, the food bell rang, and I was right behind her. I was second in line, <laughs> as is my want. <laughs> and I see her going through the line, and she has two plates. So I think, boy, that looks strange. Yeah, and she's going through the line and she's loading up these two plates with food. And my mind just went on this whole trip about this nun. And it, went on, it actually went on various trips. One trip was, she's taking so much time and everybody is here waiting to go through the lunch line and you know, she's taking so much time loading up these two plates. And, and she hurried up a little bit. So that was one track. And the other track was, it's not very nun-like. 
<laughs> to be taking all this food and holding up the line. And so all of this was my, my surface perception, my surface recognition of what was going on. And so I'm kind of standing there stewing around about all this. And then I say she finally, you know, it seemed like an hour and a half. <laughs> she finally gets to the line, two plates full of food, and she goes by, and then I see her walk over to one of the side tables, uh, and she'd been bringing food for a blind person who had been on retreat. And she was just collecting the food for that person. So then, of course, my mind did another trip. <laughs> you know, how could I think all that? <laughs> It just points out that we can have this surface perception or recognition of somebody who's either very familiar or not so familiar and have a whole way we relate to the person based on that and yet if we had a deeper understanding of that person you know whether in this case it was really their intention but in other cases just an understanding of their background or upbringing or whatever if we had a deeper understanding, our whole relationship to them would be different. It's the same with any repetitive experience. You know, we recognize the breath, we have a perception of the breath, or a perception of a sensation, or a perception of a sound. And we immediately recognize it and think we know it. The surface recognition limits our experience of it. It limits our ability to understand on a different level. One story which I've told uh, often in this talk, but it's, it's just so striking to me. Uh, it's a, it was about the son of a friend of mine who was in, uh, I don't know, second grade or something like that. And the teacher asked the students, uh, what color is an apple? And this little boy raises his hand, and he says, white. And the teacher says, wrong. <laughs> or something like that. You know, apples are not white. They're red, they're golden, they're green. There's no such thing as a white apple. Uh, but the boy was very insistent. No, you know, apples are white. And the teacher was getting more frustrated, and the boy was getting more frustrated. Yeah, and finally, after a whole process, the boy says, you know, this little boy says, what color is it when you cut it open? You know, and it was just, he had a very uh, fresh perception of the nature of an apple, whereas our more jaded perception, we just see the outside. And it's green, it's, it's yellow, it's golden. And that's how our concepts of things can limit a deeper understanding. Suzuki Roshi expressed it very well when he said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. You know, when we're lost or caught in what we think we know based on surface perception and recognition, there are very few possibilities. So this is the function of perception. When we don't examine 
experience carefully. There's one perception which we have, which is very habitual. It's a perception about the world, about ourselves. But it becomes the origin of many inaccurate conclusions. When we're not aware of this perception and we don't actually go to a deeper level of it, it's really the basis of a great deal of the suffering in our lives because it keeps us out of harmony with how things actually are. It's the perception we have of the solidity of things. Our normal way of perceiving in the world is to see the world and ourselves filled with or being solid objects. And as long as this perception of solidity is there, we don't really open to the deeper understanding of impermanence or the insubstantial nature of momentary phenomena because we're caught in this illusion of things being solid. And our language keeps reinforcing this perception. In Wes Nisker's book, Crazy Wisdom, he has this one little section he says, our language behaves as though reality were solid. On the simplest level, our language positions a subject and an object, which we think of as real, on opposite sides of a verb, which we think of as less than real. Perhaps the Hopi language reflects more closely the laws of nature. For the Hopi, nouns are verbs. It is inherent in the language that everything is interacting or in process. Many physicists also tell us that all action is all there is. Nonetheless, our language keeps piling up static things, leaving us stuck under the illusion of solidity. So this is a very deeply conditioned perception. And we go through the world with the idea that there are solid things existing. And there are reasons for this. Some good reasons. <laughs> but one of them has to do with a lack of careful attention. Because one of the things that supports this illusion of solidity is the fact that things are changing so rapidly. You know, if you take a fire, uh, what do you call it, like a torch, a fire, you know, and you, you whirl it around, and you whirl it around quickly enough, it looks like there's a circle of fire. Because you don't see the movement. The movement is happening too quickly. It gives the illusion of the circle being some solid thing or some continuous thing. You know, when we go to the movies, we are living in the illusion of actual things happening and people happening, not seeing that it's really just film of separate frames going very quickly. 
So rapidity of change contributes to the illusion of solidity. And one of the things that happens in practice, and it's quite remarkable, is that our rate of perception increases. It's what I call the NPMs, you know, notings per minute. That at first maybe we note or notice, noticings per minute, you know, 10 things, 15 things, 20 things. But as the mind gets more refined, more careful in its attention, the noticings per minute, the NPMs, goes way up. You know, in one, just in one breath or in one movement. How many different sensations are happening? We begin to see that. Okay, another reason why we have this perception of solidity is because of observation from a distance. Because we're not looking closely, we don't see the composite nature of things. Now, if we put things under a microscope, if we put this bell, this big bell, this big solid bell, this thing under a microscope, it would be a whole different reality. It wouldn't be solid at all. You know, now we go outside in the daytime and look in the distance. What do we see? We see this mass of color. And then you come closer and you see this mass of color is actually comprised of a lot of different trees. And you come even closer and you see that it's really not a tree. There's leaves and barks and stems and all the components of a tree. And you look even closer and closer and closer. What happens to the notion, the perception of tree? disappears because we're, we're seeing the composite nature. There's no solidity at all there. It's, same, it's the same with all other things we take to be so solid and real in the world. You know, car, truck, plane, house, body. This is something we take to be solid and real. When perception is stronger than mindfulness, when this factor of surface recognition is stronger than the mindfulness which is observing carefully, we see and recognize only the appearance. And then we take that concept of car, of house, of tree, of body to be some self-existing thing, something existing in itself. How much of our sense of ourselves comes from our concept of the body? Now, it's, it's often the first response, the most immediate response to the question, who am I? Well, who are you? This is me. This is who I am. And we wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror. Yep. <laughs> there I am again. But really, what are we seeing? We're seeing the appearance, a reflection of the body. We take this body to be some solid thing that we are. Now, this friend of ours uh, had this laser surgery 
to uh, remove a fibroid tumor. And they go in with this very tiny incision. And they go in with a video camera on the tip of the knife, tiny, miniaturized. And they do the whole operation, you know, by watching the video screen. And it's quite amazing. You know, because you can see cutting, cutting away the tumor and all the blood and organs and uh, muscle tissue and ligaments. And you know, as they give you the video as a kind of <laughs> reward. Well, I was really interested to see it. Uh, the friend didn't want to particularly see it at all, <laughs> having just been through the operation. But it was amazing, because it's, you're seeing the body from the inside. And when we look at the body from the inside, much less likely to identify with it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, I'm the liver. <laughs> you know, or I'm... I mean... But it's so odd, isn't it, that when it's all nice, neatly packaged in skin, yep, that's me, it's the same body. It's just in one we have this surface perception. It's the perception of a surface appearance. And we create this concept body and we get caught or attached to it. And yet when we look deeper, in whatever way, we begin to break up this illusion both of solidity and that it actually uh, is something to identify with. In the Buddhist tradition, before laser surgery, uh, you know, there's a very classical meditation uh, on the 32 parts of the body, where it's, you go through you know, the traditional 32 parts as, it was, as they were known at that time. And one by one, you know, you recite it and visualize it. You know, and it starts like hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, skin, I don't know, something. In the, and it just goes on to organs. And you repeat this over and over again, and it's really a way of deconstructing this notion that the body is a thing in itself. It's a composite you know, of many interrelated parts. And it gets even more, more unbelievable than that. Somebody, after one retreat, I guess a scientist type, came up and told me you know, that if they if we take all the space away, all the space that's contained in the body, what would be left is matter the size of a particle of dust. How do you like that? <laughs> yeah, this thing that we identify with, you know, we take to be me, I, self, the size of a particle of dust. So clearly our perception is a little off here. You know, we're not seeing deeply enough. We're just staying on the surface. And it leads to some unfortunate consequences. In the walking meditation, this is a very good uh, practice for getting through or under the illusion 
of solidity. When you're walking and you really drop in to the changing sensations, you know, and you're just with the lightness or heaviness or tension or pulling, whatever the sensations may be, and you're right there in the changing sensation, what happens to leg? What happens to foot? What happens to body? All of those are concepts, all of those are images. Those are images of a form. They're not actual experiences. You don't experience foot, you don't experience leg. There's no sensation called foot. But we are feeling the changing sensations free of form. And so it's being revealed all the time whenever we settle back and are paying close attention. The concept and form of body disappears. Just a cautionary note here. It doesn't mean that we don't see or use the sense or the understanding of the whole. By understanding that the body is a relationship of changing elements doesn't mean that we don't use this concept or that we don't use this perception. It's very valuable. I mean, we could know that the body and objects are mostly empty space and you'd come into a room, see a chair, and sit down on it. And so we have to know how to play on both of these levels, on the surface recognition, but not being caught in an attachment to that level, seeing that there's an underlying reality, so that we can play on this relative level without attachment, without fear. When we're identified with the concept of body, it has great implications in our lives. You know, because it leads to a great attachment. We get attached to this because we identify with it. We think it's a thing in itself. We identify with it as being who we are. So become very attached to it. Where does that attachment lead? as it gets older, as it gets sick, as it starts to decay, as it dies. And we get attached to other people's bodies. It simply leads to a great fear of loss. You know, a fear of death. Okay, so our practice is to use these concepts when appropriate. It's not to throw them out, but to understand that what we call body is not some solid static thing. It's really an energy field of changing insubstantial sensations. Sometimes in practice, this energy field becomes so refined that all awareness of the body disappears entirely. Now, and at times there's just the experience of knowing, of awareness. That's how not solid it is. There are other concepts as well that we create out of mental events. And what I've been talking about is concepts of our physical experience. We also create concepts, surface perceptions, around mental events. And one of the most 
influential concepts in our lives is the concept that we fabricate, the concept that we make up about the nature of time. The concepts of past and future. This is something when we understand which can be amazingly liberating for us. So it's worth really investigating this. Now what is it that we call past? What is it that we call future? We have these thoughts arising in the mind. Certain kinds of thoughts. There's a surface perception. There's a surface recognition. There's memories, recollections, remembrances. We recognize that. There's a perception which distinguishes those kinds of thoughts from different kinds of thoughts. So there's that perception. We create a concept then about those kinds of thoughts. We call those kinds of thoughts past. So there's a perception, the creation of a concept. But then we solidify that concept as if it's some actually existing thing. We kind of toss the past out behind us, you know, as if, as if it's some reality back there. The same with future. Certain kinds of thoughts appear, planning, imagining, anticipating. Certain kinds of thoughts, we create a concept, future, toss it out ahead of us, as if it's a reality waiting for us to catch up to. When we don't see these simply as thoughts, as thoughts in the moment, what happens is that we invest this very weighty reality in these thoughts. We live our lives carrying this mountainous burden of past and future on our shoulders. And we wonder why we go through life tired. Because we're carrying this huge load. I mean, the past in our concept is huge. And from a Buddhist perspective, it's even huger. <laughs> you know, if you think of you know, these countless past lives, or, you know, thoughts of the future. But what is really happening in our experience? Not in the concept and what we invest in the concept, but right in the moment, what is actually happening? There's a thought arising. The thought is incredibly light and transparent and empty. The thought has no weight at all. The problem is we often don't see it simply as a thought. We get lost in the concept and in the weight of it. These ideas of past and future so much condition how we feel. And I'm sure you've had this experience many, many times already on the retreat. Thought comes up, you know, you're doing walking, you're doing sitting, everything's going along fine. And then the thought comes into the mind, two more months. I'll never make it. 
you know, how many more breaths in two months? <laughs> and so what's happened here? It's like the mind has created a thought. There's a thought of future, two months coming, and then relating to that world which we've just created in our minds. Oh, two months. And maybe you feel very burdened by it, maybe two months, only two months, and you feel very exhilarated, whatever it is. But all that has really happened is that there was a thought arising in the moment. If we could see it just as a thought, there's no problem. Not two more months. The sky is blue. Equal. When we see that our experience of past and future always and only happens in the moment is a huge unburdening. I'm not talking about the metaphysics of time here. I'm not talking about whether past and future really exist. I'm talking about our experience of them. Our experience of them is always as a thought or feeling in the moment. If we could really see that, and it doesn't take much, it just takes some close attention to the arising of these thoughts, to, to see deeply really what they are, what's happening. There's this huge relief. Because relating to the moment is always simple. Relating to the future it's huge. The Buddha talked about how these concepts of past and future, he called them dangers to concentration, you know, or obstacles to concentration. And you know, we all know, what an amazing amount of time we spend lost in these particular concepts. I mean, how much of your time sitting and walking is spent lost in thoughts of past and future? And this is just reflective of our lives. You know, it's, it's as if there's huge amount of time lost in the past, this huge amount of time lost in the future, and then in this little bit of time, we were actually aware of what's happening in the moment. Well, our practice is this wonderful opportunity to actually expand the present moment into everything. Because really, that's all there is. Concept of time. Really look at this one. This particular uh, insight was tremendously transforming for me in my practice. Makes life a lot simpler. They're only thoughts in the moment. Okay, what are some other concepts which we get caught in? Not only of, of past and future, we get caught in concepts of ownership and possessiveness. We have the idea that we own things or possess things. Whether it's things or our bodies, we own our bodies or we're possessive of other people. Maybe we think we own our minds, although I doubt it at this point. 
How would you be if you walked into the room and you found somebody sitting on your cushion? But there'd be a few yogi notes about that one. <laughs> you know, it would be shocking, wouldn't it? it would be, <laughs> how can they be sitting on my cushion? Because we have this sense of possessiveness and we have that feeling about space. I had this come up uh, in an experience quite a while ago, but it's very reflective of what happens uh, to yogis on retreat, you know, where we have a, a feeling of our space, and in different ways when people intrude upon it, right, we get uncomfortable, we get defensive, we get contracted. I had this experience, this was years ago when I first came back from India, and I was teaching at on Naropa Institute in Boulder. It was the first summer, it was in 74, and they gave me this small apartment. I was working really hard, I was teaching many classes a day. Uh, and then over the summer, a lot of my friends from India, Sharon among them, uh, well, all came back from India and said, well, you know, we don't know what to do, let's go to Boulder and visit Joseph. <laughs> And so all of these people started piling into my apartment. And of course, they had no place to stay and no money to stay any place. Uh, and so one and two and three and five, you know. And, and after a while, I started getting very uptight about this because I was working hard and I felt like I needed my space. And you know, even though they were good friends, didn't they understand that? And so I was getting very contracted in this situation. But they didn't leave. <laughs> And so, <laughs> I was forced to relook at the situation. <laughs> but something quite, quite interesting happened. At a certain point, I was just reflecting about all the, all the times in India where we had all been together living in much more crowded situations, and it was totally fine. You know, but here, because I had the notion that it was my apartment, my space, that's what made it difficult. And so, just did that little mental uh, trick of understanding. Rearrange the concept a little bit. Right? It's no longer my apartment. It's just a space which we're all sharing, which we had done many, many times before and quite happily. And as soon as I gave up that attachment to the concept of mine, my possessiveness, my space, there was no problem. And so I was thinking about that in the context of how you are on retreat, or how we are you know, when we're on retreat. The difference between kind of going through the day and feeling identified with this, possessive of this and the space around this as being mine, the difference between that and going through the day with an awareness that holds everything within it equally. Is that clear? You know, the difference between being contracted and taking this body, this mind, this space around me to be mine, and all of these other beings are there just waiting to intrude, going from that perspective to actually letting the mind expand, let the awareness be very open, very spacious, and 
all of us here simply in the common, the common room of awareness. Not identifying, not separating ourselves out. It's a very different way. So the next time you feel intruded upon in one way or another, just look to see if there's some element of this attachment to the concept of ownership, of possessiveness, of me, of mine. This is the, this is the work actually of freeing our minds. The concepts of time, of past and future, concepts of ownership, a lot of concepts around self-image. We create images of ourselves, or we identify with certain roles. And it's, remember when you were a kid, uh, or at least I had these plaster of Paris molds, you know, and you pour the plaster of Paris into the mold and out comes you know, some shaped figure. But what we do with self-images and roles, it's just like that. It's like we're pouring ourselves into a mold of how we think we are, of who we think we are. And it could be, and very commonly on retreat, it could be the role of good yogi or bad yogi. You know, oh, I'm a terrible yogi. Oh, I'm a great yogi. You know, and all the attendant comparing that comes out of that concept you know, comparing ourselves with others, which is really, in the Buddhist world, a manifestation of the defilement of conceit. Now, conceit doesn't only mean we feel better than, it means any comparing. Because what we're doing is we're narrowing our view of ourselves, we're narrowing our sense of the nature of this mind and body through a self-image. And even things which seem very fundamental, you know, like gender, like culture, like race, these things which seem really to speak to who we are, when you look more carefully, more deeply, underneath the surface perception, what is the color of your mind? Is it black? Is it white? Is it yellow? Now, is your breath male or female? How old is the pain in your knee? Right? These concepts, although they have a certain function and they point to some differences on a more fundamental level of awareness, they don't mean anything. So we recognize the differences. We're all living out a different set of conditioning, but are we living it out mired in delusion, or are we living it out from a place of wisdom, from a place of non-imprisonment in these concepts? Whenever we become identified with any of the particular circumstances of our lives, whenever we become identified with a particular circumstance, right there is the contraction of separation. We're separating ourselves out. 
The great poet Rumi had a wonderful couple of lines about this. He said, what I want is to leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. We've lived too long where we can be reached. Concepts of time, of ownership, possessiveness, self-image, the deepest concept, the one that is most deeply rooted, the Gordian knot of our lives, is the concept of self. The idea that there's someone to whom experience is happening. We create a reference point of self, a reference point of I, and then call that mental creation self or Joseph. Really, a very great awakening happens when we understand that all experience, both what we call subjective or objective, from any side, when we see that all experience is simply empty phenomena rolling on. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. What we call self, what we call I, is simply this current of phenomena arising and passing. Both the knowing and the things known. No one behind it. It's all arising out of conditions. And the Buddha expressed this very succinctly in the Dhammapada. He said, there are actions without an actor, doing without a doer, suffering without anyone who suffers, enlightenment without anyone who gets enlightened. So if there is no one behind this flow of empty experience, if there is no reference point to whom every, everything is happening, why is this notion of self so deeply conditioned? Why is it held so strongly? Which we all do. This is, this is like the core piece of our lives, the sense of I. We get so fixated or so lost in this concept of self or I because for the most part in our lives we rely on the surface appearance, the surface perception. We don't look deeply into the composite nature of things, to the conditioned nature. Not seeing that what we call self is a constellation of changing elements. And each of those elements is insubstantial and empty. Okay, this is my favorite example of selflessness. It's not the Big Dipper. <laughs> it's the other one.
we go out after a rain, we see a rainbow. And now we see it, we recognize it, we have this perception, oh, there's a rainbow, and we feel a certain kind of delight. When we examine more carefully, what do we see? That really there's no, there's no self-existing thing which is a rainbow. A rainbow is an appearance arising out of certain conditions. There's moisture and light and air, and the conditions come together in the right way, and a rainbow appears. Is there any rainbow apart from those conditions? No. There's no thing which is there which is a rainbow. It's just an appearance arising out of conditions coming together in a particular way. So this is the good news. We're all rainbows. It's just like a rainbow. There's an appearance of Joseph and each one of us, there's an appearance arising out of conditions. And these conditions are always changing and transforming. There's no one there as some solid being that we could call self or I, this is who I am. It's much more transparent, much more insubstantial, much emptier than that. But we have to look deeply carefully in order to see this, in order to free ourselves from attachment to the surface perception. Oh yeah, there's a rainbow. And if we just stay on that level, we don't really understand the transparent nature, the empty nature. This is a little writing from Stephen Mitchell. do you know the, the myth of Narcissus? You know, this person who was so entranced with his own beauty that when he saw his reflection in the pond, uh, he became so fixated you know, on the beauty of the image that he simply died there because he couldn't tear himself away. So this is Stephen Mitchell's interpretation of that. I guess it's a Greek myth. Uh, okay, Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, the reflection, it too rippled, or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew 
the image would disappear. It's so much of what our practice is about. You know, and you might, you might have noticed, and I'm sure it's part of your experience, you go down to the little pond at the end of the property, or Gaston Pond. Now when you look at the surface, you can see the reflections of all the, the trees. And if you stay just on the surface, that's the reflection that holds the attention. But if you more, look more carefully, you can see straight through to the bottom and the image, the reflection disappears. Usually what we're seeing is this reflection, this surface perception and calling it self, calling it I. When we look deeply into the nature of our experience, the image disappears. This was expressed very simply by the Chinese poet Li Po, when he said, we sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. So that's really what we're doing. We're sitting together, the breath in me, a thought in me, a sensation in me, until only the breath remains. We see through the illusion of self, the surface appearance of self, the concept of self. This is the great transforming understanding of our practice. Let's sit for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs>